no father can be happier than I am. Two and a half weeks ago, we had our fifth child. David Andrew Brandon is right there in the back rather than up here in the front. Uh, I felt kind of naked and exposed without my family here this morning, but um, I trust you all know what that's about. Um, you know, Savannah and I have had children over the years. It's been, been very interesting of the, uh, the, the different advice that we have received from the, uh, from the hospital as we have been discharged to go home with our babies. And particularly with the, um, the issue of SIDS. You know what SIDS is, right? Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Um, people are very, very careful about how it is they ought to put their child down in the crib or in the bed. And, and in fact, just this last time, just two weeks ago when Yvonne was um, discharged from the hospital, the nurse set her down and said, okay, what you need to do is make sure that um, at night, always put the baby on, on his back or on his side. But in the daytime, if you're around... You set him on his tummy. He can nap just fine on his tummy. Just make sure you're around to monitor him. In fact, it's good for him to have tummy time because to strengthen neck muscles and for his head shape really helps rather than being on his back all the time. That's what we were told two weeks ago. Um, Stephanie, when she was born about four years ago, the advice was a little bit different. The advice went something like this. Um, Now... um, when, when you have your daughter, make sure you always at night put her on her back and on her side. But, you know what, in the day when she's awake, it's okay for her to have um, time on her tummy as long as she's closely monitored, is what uh, was said. Um, because, you know, being a tummy is good, but you need to really monitor if she's on her tummy. So four years before that, our Hannah was born, and uh, the advice was different before. And the advice on that day was... Um, was, um, Avon, you know, never put your child on your tummy. Never put the child on your tummy. Always put your child, when you put your child down, put her on her back or on her side. Just it's, it's not good for your child to lay on the tummy. And that was a actually experience for Krista, Stanley Ray, and for Hannah. And um, recently, about a week and a half ago, when my sister came out to visit us and see our new baby, we we're talking about these different different ways in which we've been instructed on things. And she had a baby even before we did, long before even we were thinking about taking babies and putting them in their cribs and how we should put them down. And uh, she said one time she was in the hospital with her oldest, who now is 16, and uh, my sister had placed the baby down on her back. And uh, a nurse happened to come into the hospital room and see that and went, <gasps> don't ever put the baby down on her back, you know, and picked her up and uh, picked him up and tried to change things. It's like, what is, what is right? What are we supposed to do? And I thought that was a, a good illustration of how it seems that the medical profession doesn't quite know. Over time, things have changed. Um, Things are changed today than they were a few years ago, and maybe in the future the advice will be always the tummy. You know, maybe they got these cycles. I'm not exactly sure of what's going on here, but our ways today aren't necessarily the ways that things will be done in the future. Now, that's a perfect lead-in to my sermon series this summer, as you all know, as many of you know, most of you know. Throughout this summer, we're in the midst of a, a topical sermon series entitled, Not Our Ways. Not our ways. I've taken the idea from a sermon preached in the early 1800s by Edward Payson entitled, God's Ways Above Men's. And in this sermon, Payson made a great case for demonstrating how God has created this universe in a, different, in a manner far different than what we would have naturally thought the world should have been created. Um, and in the heart of that sermon, he provided eight different specific examples of how this is the case. And throughout eight weeks this summer, I'm going to take each of these topics as the basis of my messages. Um, in fact, if you want to read that sermon by Edward Payson, it is on the back table. Um, and there are about 20 copies there. Now, last week they, kind of, they ran out because some of you picked them up. And I would just say, pick it up and take it home and read it. It forms the basis of everything we're talking about this summertime. Um, and if you read them, I think you'll be able to understand my messages better. Kind of, It sets the context for everything that's going on. Well, last week we... We looked at the presence of evil in the world. Had we created a world, I don't think we would have created it with evil in the world where evil was permitted to have its devastating effects like it does in our world. But you know what? God 
has permitted wickedness and sin and misery to take its course in this world. And in fact, just this very fact has caused many people not to believe in the Bible at all. They, they question God. said, how could an all-powerful God exist with evil in the world if He's really good? Right? Either God isn't powerful enough to stop the evil, or He's powerful enough, but He's evil in that He won't stop the good. Surely such a God doesn't exist, they say. We spent last week thinking about the phenomenon of evil in the world. And we saw the Bible teaches that God uses evil to accomplish His purposes while remaining sinless Himself. How He does it, I'm not sure, but God definitely uses evil to accomplish His purposes. If you want more about that, um, I think we have messages back there. Do we have messages of last week's sermon? In paper. No, that's fine. In, in papers back there, you can read that as well. That'd be fine. Um, well, this week we're going to pick up the next topic that Edward Payson used to demonstrate that God created a world is different than what we might naturally think. And he addresses this topic of the covenantal headship of Adam. And Adam is our federal representative, as depicted here in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Let me read for you the portion of Edward Payson's sermon. He said this, In appointing Adam to be the covenant head and representative of the human race, So that if he stood, his posterity should stand. And if he fell, his posterity should fall. God did not act as we probably should have done. That he has done this is evident from fact. For we find that sin and its consequences do descend to every individual of the species. And we are told that in Adam all die. But we should have thought it best to have no such constitution but to have had the condition of every individual independent of that of every other. This method God did adapt with angels. And why He saw fit to adapt a different method with respect to us, He has not seen fit to inform us, and we cannot tell. It is, however, evident that in this particular, God's thoughts and ways are above ours. That may have found difficulty in you following that, If that's the case, that's okay. Uh, I think it will be clear by the end of my message this morning. What Payson is putting forth here is the idea of imputation. Now, to to some of you, that might be a new word. Or it might be a word you don't use very much. Or maybe some theological word that's on the the shelf someplace and you don't really understand what it it means. If my message today accomplishes nothing else but you learning a new word, that's great. That is just fine with me. Because I think this word is so important, it's profitable for you to know the meaning of this word. And in fact, my message this morning is entitled, Not My Ways, Imputation. You can just call my message, Imputation is my message this morning. And that is not our ways. It is God's ways. He deals with us in imputation. Now, at its most fundamental level, imputation describes the process of thinking or counting or regarding or reckoning or crediting. That's what imputation means. Just to regard, to account, to to think or consider as if something's the case. Um, Particularly theologically, imputation describes the process of transferring responsibility for an action to someone else who wasn't involved in the action. And so, in other words, I do something and the um, merit or punishment of that gets imputed to someone else. They consider that person as if they did this, although they didn't. It's imputed from one person to another It means that you are regarding another person with the responsibility of the action of someone else. I'm sure you're confused now because I'm confused. And what I want to do is probably the best way is to show you an example of imputation. Before we get here to Romans 5, which we will about midway through my sermon, I want to take us to Joshua chapter 7. Because in this chapter shows this concept of of imputation and how it works. You can turn there in your Bibles. I I recommend that because we're going to spend some time here. Joshua chapter 7 records the story of Israel as they began their military conquest in the land of Palestine. In chapter 6, we saw the great, wonderful, miraculous victory at Jericho. And that's when the people of Israel marched around the city each day for six days. On the seventh day, they marched around seven times around the city. They blew their trumpets and the walls of the city fell out and they fell down such that it formed a ramp that people could walk up in the inn and they went in and they conquered the city and destroyed all of Jericho save Rahab and her family. 
Israel is riding a, a high on the victory that they just gained. At this point, you know, if, you, if you're going to chart the life of Israel, it is going up and up and up and up and up. And then in chapter 7, they go out to fight the people of Ai and everything turns bad. Israel had come against them, but they were defeated in uh, verse 5, says that 35, 36 of their men were killed. And Joshua was distressed. Verse 6, he tore his clothes. He fell on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, a sign of repentance, saying, God, how can these people of Ai have conquered us? And he prayed, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Complaining, crying, pleading with the Lord, saying, God, we, we don't want to die out here. We'd rather stay on the other side of the Jordan rather than pass it over here. And then God responds. He said, rise up. Why is it you've fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. And then verses 12, 13, 14, God says, okay, gather the people, choose by lot the sinning party. And then in verse 16, it says, it shall be the one who has taken the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him, including his family, his children, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. And so in verse 16, we read how Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel, right? And they, they cast lots. I don't know how they did this. It's a little bit like flipping a coin, okay? One in 12, boom, they, drew, they, they chose the tribe of Judah. He says, okay, all you rest of the tribe, you go home, have a good night. Judah, you come here. And so all of the tribe of Judah stood before him. And again, he chose by lot. In verse 17, it speaks about how of all the, 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 the families of the tribe of Judah, the lot fell on the Zerahites. So he sent everybody else home except the, the Zerahites. And they said, okay, now what about you guys? And then in verse 17, again a lot was cast and it fell on the household of Zabdi. So the household of Zabdi came along and everyone else was dismissed home. So you got the household of Zabdi and then lots were cast again and it fell on Achan is what verse 18 says. And then Joshua said, verse 19, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And then Achan said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold, fifty shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth underneath my tent with silver underneath it. Joshua then sent to see, okay, is that the case? They uncovered it. It was Every fact was confirmed out of Achan's mouth. And then Joshua, verse 24, and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones and they burned them with fire. And they had them stoned. We burned them with fire after they had them stoned with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones. It stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. That's imputation. Particularly in thinking about Achan's sin imputed to his family. It says right there that his children were stoned and burned for the sin of their father. Israel was clearly commanded, verse 1, don't take things under the ban. 
Achan himself even confessed, I took things that were under the ban in verse 21. And because of the sin of their father, Achan's sons and daughters were stoned and burned. That's what imputation is. Achan's guilt imputed to his children. They died because of his his sin. Achan's children bore the responsibility and received the punishment along with their father. That's imputation. Now, in general, people don't like this type of imputation. All right? Let me take you a small example and then maybe a big example. Right? So suppose your, your family, think about your family, Father's Day, Father's Day, think about your children, and uh, little Johnny's sitting here with his toy. He's sitting there nice and content, and he's quiet, and he's playing with his toy, doing a, doing a great job. And along comes his sister, Chrissy. And Chrissy sees how much enjoyment he's getting from the toy. And she says, hmm, if he's getting that much enjoyment from the toy, I think I can get that much enjoyment from the toy. And so Chrissy grabs the toy from Johnny and then she starts enjoying the toy. Now Johnny sees what happens and goes back and forth. And there starts a fight in Susan. And the volume raises. And now, Dad, you're in the other room and you hear this ruckus coming up. And so you walk into the other room and, and you say, Johnny, Chrissy, what's up? And it all evolves. You don't even know all the details. It all evolves around this toy. And so what do you say? Let's take that toy away. If this is causing the problem, let's just take this toy away. And what essentially you've done is punished both of them. Now, maybe Johnny didn't respond rightly to Chrissy, but in some sense, Johnny feels like he got the shaft. It's like, how can this be? I was happy with that toy. She came along, assaulted me, and now I don't have the toy. That's not fair. Well, that's a little bit like imputation. And children don't like that. They feel cheated when imputation comes. Or maybe to put it in a bigger example in our society, suppose it was in our society that um, if a man was found guilty and on death row, when he died, his wife and children died as well. How do you think our society would handle up to that? What would happen if that would happen? There would be a huge outcry. And I I think, personally, I think rightly so. But you know what? That's exactly what God did here with Achan. Achan sinned, and God had Achan sinned and his sons and his daughters because it's a picture of imputation. Achan's guilt imputed to his children. Now, when people see this in Achan, they, they try to solve the problem. And they say, well, God's a God of justice. He'll only punish you for your sin. He won't punish you for the sins of others. And so they say, well, Achan's children must have been accomplices in the crime. Maybe they, they, they dug the hole in the tent where they can put all those things. They participated somehow, so they were guilty also. So it, it's, it's all the more fair that they were then um, stoned and burned. Well, the difficulty with this is the text doesn't give any indication of that. And if anything, the text goes overboard the other side to show that it, it was Achan and Achan's sin alone and wasn't their children's sin. In fact, look at his confession in verse 20. He says, I have sinned. This is what I have done. When I saw it, I coveted. And I took them. Four times in this verse, maybe five verbs. He says, I did it. I'm the one responsible. Not once does he give a hint that his children are involved in these matters. Well, you might say, well, you know, maybe he's just trying to take responsibility. Maybe. But look also what it says in chapter 7, verse 1, of this idea of imputation. It wasn't only Achan's sin being imputed to the children. You see that clearly in the punishment. It was also Achan's sin imputed to the whole congregation of Israel. Verse 1. But the sons, notice, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For one son, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. I mean, that is imputation. One man's sin, God says, the whole nation sinned. And God says, my anger is burning against the whole nation, not just against the one man. And furthermore, when this situation is referenced at the end of Joshua, in Joshua 22, verse 20, 
It just kind of refers to it and says, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. His iniquity, he didn't perish alone. His whole family perished together. And I just say, it is clear that the one man's sin affected the many. He did not perish alone in his iniquity. In fact, not only his family died, but also he was directly responsible for the 36 soldiers who went up to Ai and, and lost their lives there because the Lord was not with them, is what it says in Joshua 7, verse 5. Right? They died because God wasn't with them. God wasn't with them because Achan sinned and God was angry with the whole congregation. That is imputation. Now, there are many who don't like it. There are many who try to explain it away, but that's the point of my message, that our ways are not... God's ways. Now, this is by no means the only instance in the Scriptures where this is the case. We can see others. The case of Abimelech. Uh, Perhaps you remember Genesis chapter 20. Abraham was going up to Gerar where Abimelech there was king. He was worried about the beauty of his wife. And so he told Sarah, hey, let's do this thing. You tell him that you're my sister because really we are brother and sister, sort of, kind of half-brother, half-sister, twice removed or whatever. And, and so when you go up there, <clears throat> you say that. And so Abimelech took Sarah into his harem. And then it says, <clears throat> excuse me, it said that very night, the Lord appeared to Abimelech in a dream said, Abimelech, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you've taken, for she's married. And Abimelech said, Lord, would you slay a nation because even though I am innocent... Let me read that again. Genesis 20, verse 4. Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? And then he went on to explain how in the innocence of his heart, he didn't know she was married. Abraham said she was his sister and so took him in. And God said, you're a dead man. And Abimelech says, you can destroy our nation because of that? God said to Abimelech, yes, I know in the integrity of your heart you've done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife for... He is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But, watch this. If you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God would visit the iniquity of Abimelech upon his people. Might be a nation is how Abimelech interpreted it. Might be his family, but it would come upon them. We don't exactly know. But that's imputation. God regarding many responsible for the sin of one man. It's all over the Bible, right? Maybe you remember the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. <clears throat> they, along with 250 men, arose in rebellion against Moses and Aaron. So they said, Aaron and Moses, you've gone too far enough for all the congregation are holy. Every one of them. And the Lord's in our midst. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? They exchanges back and forth and back and forth. And then Moses said, all right, guys, Keep away from the tent of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram because something terrible is going to happen. And the people of Israel all got away. And, and Moses even predicted, he said, he said, by this you'll know the Lord has sent me to do these things. He said, if these men die the death of all men or if they suffer the fate of all men, the Lord hasn't sent me. But if something new comes about and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up and all that is theirs and everything to send into, alive into Sheol, then you'll understand these men have spurned the Lord. Sure enough, as soon as Moses stopped speaking, Numbers 16, verse 31 says, the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households. That is, and their wives and their children and their tents and their silver and their pots, and their pans, and their pets, and everything, boom, swallowed up. And then the earth covered it over. Men, women, children, all swallowed up by the earth because of the sin of Korah, Dathan, and Biram, their rebellion. That's imputation. That's what imputation. The Lord held these people, the family, guilty for the sin of their fathers. There are many more examples in the Scripture. For the sake of time, we're not going to go to those, but I can show you many other examples. Imputation is the thrust, though, of Exodus 34, verse 7. The Lord shares that He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. What a timely word for Father's Day this is. To all you fathers. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will visit your iniquity on your children, on your grandchildren, on your great-grandchildren, and on your great-great-grandchildren, holding them responsible in some measure for your sin. Exodus 34, verse 7. Now, in in saying this, let me be clear. It doesn't absolve us of individual responsibility. I'm not saying that's the only way God deals with people. He deals with people basically on individual responsibility. Ezekiel 18, verse 4 is clear. The soul that sins will die. You're not going to die for the sins of your father is kind of what that says. Kind of the other side, he's trying to balance things off. There are individual responsibility. Each and every single one of you are all responsible for your own sins. But in saying these things, I'm just trying to say, because we're so individualistic in our mind, that's our ways. You know, As long as I'm clean, that's okay. I'm just saying that God doesn't only look at us as individuals. He looks at us as a corporate whole as well, particularly those in authority. The decisions they make press down to those who are in subjection under them. As for fathers, you need to really know that your actions are going to have an implication. Now, we as Americans, we don't think this way. I mean, the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. They're endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And intrinsic in that is individuals. Everybody has this chance for life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And I just, I would say this. On a human plane, that is exactly right. We are all absolutely created equal. We all ought to fight for everyone's rights to pursue their own happiness, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Um, Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We all want to seek to do that on a human plane. And we ought to rise up and say, that's not fair and we won't tolerate a, a murderer dying with his family by the, the government. That, that's just, there's something about that that's not right. And, and that is exactly right on the human plane. But on a divine plane, when we talk about God's ways, they're different than ours. And God does take those things into account. Views corporate holes. That's why Jesus could condemn cities. That's why He did it. Because they're responsible. See, God doesn't always act in accordance with individual responsibility. There are times when the sin of one is imputed to another. In fact, I'll say this. Every single one of us are guilty because of someone else's sin. You know that? We all have guilt imputed to us. Every single one of you. It's Tom or Malin or Sherlin. It's Darcy or Melissa or Amanda. All of us, we have guilt because of what somebody else did. And you guys know who that is, right? Who am I talking about? Adam. So let's turn now to Romans chapter 5 to show you imputation. Because Romans chapter 5 shows it about as clear as any passage in all the rest of the Scripture. This is the most foundational, most important, clearest Scripture where we find the, the doctrine of imputation being taught. Jake already read it, so I don't feel the need to read it again. Let me just say this, my, my point, my message this morning has two points. The first is the imputation of Adam's sin. We see that coming here in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, verse 12 says this, because of what one man did, The consequences of that action has come upon all of us. We are responsible for the sin of Adam. When Adam sinned, we shared in that sin. And the consequence of that sin has come to us. What's the consequence? Death is the consequence. The wage of sin is death, Romans 6.23. As Adam sinned, he received his wages, which was death. But he wasn't the only one who received it. We all received it. We all will die. Why will we die? Because Adam sinned. So verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's imputation. We are guilty 
because of what Adam did. Now, at this point, theologians try to figure out, okay, are we guilty because he was our representative? Like, for instance, this is a bit like our democracy today. We don't live in a true democracy. I hope you know that. A true democracy would have everybody in the whole nation all vote on every issue. And that's not how it works. What we do, we vote for our representative. Our representative that goes to Springfield or goes to Washington, D.C., and does their thing and votes and enacts the law. And as they are our representatives, we are responsible to abide by the laws that they give, the rules that they give. We are submission to them. And we, since we voted them as our, as our representative, then we're responsible for what they do. Now, only the case here with, um, with Adam is that we didn't vote for Adam. God declared him, he is your representative. But the idea is the same. This is called the, the representative view, whether Adam is just maybe our representative. Or there's another view um, that, and I forget the name of this. Uh, I, I didn't write it down. It's the realistic, I think that's, it's the realistic view. And, and this view says that when Adam sinned, we sinned right with him. You know, it's an interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, that speaks about Abraham paying tithes to Abimelech. And um, basically what it says is that Levi, though he wasn't there with Abimelech, he was in the loins of Abraham. He paid tithes to Abimelech because, uh, to Melchizedek because he was in his loins, right? In other words, Hebrews 7. And so to speak, though... Through Abraham, even Levi, okay, Abraham, and then goes all through the generations to get to Levi. Even Levi, who received tithes according to law, he paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That's the realistic view, that that we were there, they call it seminally. We were there in Adam when he sinned. That's the realistic view. I don't know which view it is. I just know that we are guilty for Adam's sin because we sinned with him, either as our representative or we're right there with him in the garden. I'm not sure how. Um, I, read, I read some stuff on that and it's beyond me. I tried. I can't, I can't figure out exactly what's right. But that's how. We sinned in Adam. We're responsible. And it is interesting here, talking about the responsibility of the imputation here in verses 13 and 14, explain this. If you notice that after it says, because all sinned, your Bible translation might have a dash or it might have a colon after that. What that's saying is that, okay, now I'm going to explain. And he spends from verse 13 through verse 17 really explaining what he means by because all sinned is what's going on there. And so I want to read 13 and 14, explain them to you. And show you how this interpretation here of verse 12 is a, has to be the case. It says, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. All right, so what Paul is doing here is taking us back in history from the time between Adam and Moses. Several thousand years of history he's talking about. So, okay, think about what life was like in those days. They all knew of God basically based upon what Adam had experienced, what Adam had told them. There was no written law. There was no direction from God given to the people. It was basically they're without law because the law didn't come until Moses. And so, Paul is saying, think here about the time between Adam and and Moses, when there was no law. Now, certainly there was sin in the world during this time. A lot of sin. Cain killed his brother Abel. A few generations later, Lamech murdered another man. We see the world so corrupt in Genesis chapter 6 that God says the greatness of sin is great upon the earth and every thought and intention of the heart is only evil continuing. I'm looking upon the man and they are sinning all the time. I'm going to destroy this world. And he saves eight. And then after that, even these eight populate the world and they still are sinning. You look at the patriarchs. They're far from being righteous. Abraham, known as the father of faith, failed to trust God many times. He committed adultery at the urging of his wife. Lied on several occasions. Isaac followed his father's steps, putting forth the same lie to the same person. Abimelech, king of Gerar. Isaac and Rebekah played favorites with their children. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. 
And these two guys were scoundrels. Jacob especially. Jacob took advantage of Esau's hunger one day and coerced him to sign away his birthright. Jacob was a scoundrel. Jacob deceived his father Isaac, stealing Esau's blessing. But why would anybody name their child Jacob? <laughs> we sang of the God of Jacob today. So that was... That was. Anyway... Jacob's sons weren't good either. They treated their brother contempt, selling him to slavery. Lots of sin between Adam and Moses. But look what Paul says. He says, until the law, sin was in the world. Absolutely. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. In other words, if you don't have a law that's written down or spoken, you can't be held guilty for breaking the law. For instance, suppose you went down to your local Walmart. And you, you gathered some groceries and you, you got them together and you put them in the trunk of your car and then you're driving on the way home and you look in your rearview mirror and there's a policeman behind you. So you pull over and you say, what's up, officer? And the officer says, I, I see that you were at Walmart just recently. He said, yes. He said, can I, can I inspect your groceries? Sure, what's the problem? And so you unlock the car and open them up and the groceries and the policeman starts scooping through your items of what, what you got there and then says, um, sorry, I need to arrest you. So puts handcuffs on you, takes you down to, to um, the, the police station. And, and while you're enjoying the scenic view from the back of the squad car, your arms around, you're asking, um, <laughs> what am I being arrested for? And the police officer says, oh, he said, uh, I noticed that you purchased some aluminum foil and liquid Drano. Do any of you know what aluminum foil and liquid Drano do when you mix them together? Pardon me, men, fathers with um, teenage boys, okay? You know what it does, Maggie? Hey, Tim, you know what it, what's it do, Tim? <laughs> it makes a bomb. You're exactly right. Have you done that before, Tim? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Now, the only reason I know this is because there's been some times at night, some, uh, I'm guessing teenage boys in our neighborhood were sleeping nice and calm. All of a sudden we hear this, boom! And oh, geez, like, what? You know, it's really loud. And we go outside and we find this shredded, um, uh, pop, a plastic pop bottle with these, you know, whatever is aluminum. And I couldn't figure it out. I looked up in the internet. Oh, mix aluminum, liquid Drano, shake it up, put it here, and boom! And it's very dangerous, okay? So when you do that, John and Jay, just make sure you're wearing your safety goggles. <laughs> Alex, have you done this? Okay, Alex, done it too. I've not. I want to. I want to see. I saw some videos last night about it happening. It was. It was pretty cool. But anyway, anyway, this officer comes and he says, "You've purchased these two items together, and we've just decided um, down here at the police station that you, it's illegal to do that, and it shows signs of evil that you're planning to do. We have a policy to arrest anybody who purchased aluminum foil and liquid Drano on the same trip to the store. Now, would that be fair? He's like, why are you arresting me? There's no law. Let me call my representative. Where's the law in the books? See, because where there is no law, right, Sin is not imputed. That's what verse 16, 13 says. Sin is not imputed where there is no law. From Adam until Moses, there was no written law of God upon the books. He hadn't given them the law to those living on the earth. They came with Moses. Without the law, God won't punish people for their sins. And yet, what does it say here in verse 14? Nevertheless, though sin isn't imputed when there is no law, from Adam until Moses, death reigned. In other words, from Adam... Until Moses, people died, even though they had not sinned according to the law. How had they sinned? How was sin imputed to them? Sin was imputed to them because they sinned in Adam. And they were guilty of Adam's sin, and therefore that's why they died. That's the condemnation. So God told Adam, in the day you eat of it, you surely will die. He died spiritually and that he was scared of God from that point on. He died physically and that he died 900 and some 30 years later, whatever it was. But everyone else died because they sinned in Adam. And there was Adam's sin which then spread to everybody and we were guilty in Adam's sin. Okay, That is, 
imputation. And that's the point of Genesis chapter 5. You read through there and it says, And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death has come into the world because of Adam's sin. Now, those who lived from Adam until Moses couldn't have sinned, as it says, in the likeness of the offense of Adam. First of all, they didn't have the command not to eat of the tree. Furthermore, they couldn't eat from the tree because God set up his cherubim to guard that tree. They couldn't do that. They couldn't get to the tree to eat of it, but yet they still died because of Adam's sin. That's what verses 13 and 14 are are teaching us. Well, it's also interesting here that many people see the problem here because all sinned here in verse 12. And many people don't like this idea of imputation. And we'll say, imputation can't be. How are we held responsible for the sin of another? And so, um, even some might say, you should read it like this. Verse 12 right at the end. So, death spread to all men because all have sinned. Right? In other words, all as they walked upon their life upon earth, they sinned. And therefore, that's why they die. Because the wages of sin is death. Now, such an explanation might sound nice. But you know what? It's just not... It doesn't bear up under context. 13 and 14 show this whole thing. They didn't sin according to the law. They didn't transgress the written law of God, but they still died. Why did they die? Because of Adam's sin came to them. And some will say, well, that's not fair. That can't be. God would never punish anybody for a sin committed by another. It must be that they have sinned as they deal, but it doesn't, it doesn't bear up under verses 13 and 14. And that's the point of my message. I don't care whether you like it or not. I'm not sure I care whether it sounds good to you or not. I don't care whether it makes logical sense to you or not. The plain fact is that Adam was our representative head and we bear the responsibility of sin he committed. And we all die because of Adam's sins. God's ways are not our ways. Yes, He will hold each individual responsible for his own sins, but God also holds us responsible for the sins of Adam. All right, at this point in my message, I want to ask you a searching question. Do you like this? Is this like something that you're like, Hallelujah, that's great! Do you love this? Do you like the way the Lord has established the universe? Do you like the rules He's set in place? Do you like the fact that you're responsible for Adam's sin and that you may be responsible for other sins? Do you like the way that God imputes Adam's sin to you? I think the answer is no. Before I go on to my second point, let, let me just tell you, I remember one time hearing about how the Puritans preached. And the Puritans preached like this. John Wesley, I think, was said, when I preach, I preach the law. And it comes strong and hard. And when I think the people have had enough of it, I bring the law again. I bring it strong and hard. And then I give a little bit of grace so that lest they lose hope. I mean, that was the, that was the purpose behind the aluminum bombs. But I want to bring it hard. I want to bring it strong so they hear, and then I want to bring it stronger again. And then, when they feel their despair, I want to bring grace strong and true and free and abundant and abounding. And this is the moment in my message where I'm turning the corner and I'm going to preach grace now. Because I have just preached the law. And I hope I, I preached in such a way that you come and say, maybe, this, I don't like this imputation stuff. Well, you know what? I love this imputation stuff. And it's not because that's where I am condemned. It's because if imputation doesn't happen, I have no hope for righteousness. And I'll show you with the imputation of Christ's righteousness, my second point. Because here in Romans 5, there's, there's another parallel story going on which I've not yet brought to your attention. As I have gone through Romans 5, I've purposely hidden us and kept us away from the good news because I want us to grapple with the dark side of imp- imputation first. And I want to paint the dark side so black that the bright side of this passage comes so glorious you can barely contain yourself for the joy that comes here. Indeed, in Romans 5, 12-21, is all about two men who committed two acts which had two results. Two men committed two acts, had two results. And we've only dealt with one man, had one act, and had a terrible result. Let's talk now about the other man. Right? These two men, one was Adam and the other was Jesus. The two acts are clear. Adam committed sin in the garden. Jesus died upon the cross. The two results are clear. Adam brought the entire race into condemnation and death. 
And what Jesus did, Christ brought the many into justification and life. Well, to see these things, let's get after the parentheses. Let's look at verse 18. Because here in 18, it's really a summary of the whole section. He says, he starts off with, so then, here's the conclusion, here's the summary, and he summarizes it so nicely. Let's pick this up, and then we'll finish 15 through 17, where the abundant light will come. Um, 18. So then, as through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness that resulted justification of life to all men. We've seen the one transgression. That was the reality of verse 12, verse 13, and verse 14. Adam's one transgression brought condemnation upon the entire human race because sin is imputed to us. Now, the good news comes in the second half of verse 18. Even so, through one act of righteousness, Christ upon the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. It's talking about the cross. When Jesus came and died upon the cross, He was a righteous substitute. It was a righteous act. It says in 1 Peter that, that Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. While being reviled, He didn't revile in return. While being threatened, while suffering, He uttered no threats, but He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judged righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. He took the responsibility for our sin. Our sin imputed to Jesus. That's what that is saying. That's the act of righteousness. That is justification to life. And Romans is filled with this kind of talk. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, it's through faith that we are justified. It says, But to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You could easily... Translate there, his faith is imputed as righteousness. God looks down upon our faith. So we believe in Jesus and he considers that faith there to be righteousness because of what Jesus did. And this is why imputation is so great. Because listen, the same way we received our guilt by Adam's sin being imputed to us is the same way that we have received our righteousness Christ's righteousness imputed to us. The parallel is exact. So if you want to say this morning, it's not fair that God would hold me responsible for the sin of Adam, then you are going to be obliged to say that it's not fair that God is able to make me righteous in Jesus Christ. You have to keep that argument to be logically correct. If you reject the imputation of Adam's sin like some try to do in Romans 5, verse 12? It's disaster because the parallel is that God's Word gives us righteousness. And we must reject the righteousness of Christ if we reject the righteousness of, or the imputation of Adam's sin to us. If you want to say, God, it's not fair you condemn me for the sin of Adam. I want to be held responsible for my own sin. What do you have to say back to God? Well, God, it's not fair you justify me by the righteous act of Jesus upon the cross. I want to be declared righteous for my own righteousness, God. <laughs> and where's that going to get you, fellow sinners? It's going to get us drawn right to the pit of hell because none of us can stand. All of us have sinned and fallen far short of the glory of God. And our only hope is imputation. That's our only hope. And praise the Lord, listen, that He has woven imputation into the fabric of the way that the world works. Without it, we go the path of Adam without hope. We sin like He does. And there's nothing that can make us right if there's no imputation. <laughs> Paul even speaks about how, how blessed, how great this is in, in chapter 4 again, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You could translate that, as does the um, New American Standard Version of uh, Psalm 32, verse 2. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. 
Blessed is that man when God doesn't impute the iniquity to us. Listen, God has been gracious in establishing to us a world where the concept of imputation is valid. It's the only way that any of us stand any chance to stand righteous before God by having another impute His righteousness to us. That's your only hope. And so, as dark as the imputation of Adam's sin is, finish Romans chapter 5 and rejoice in how good the imputation of righteousness is to us. Verse 19 says the same thing. So I'm going to say the same thing. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. See, when Adam sinned, we're all made sinners. Adam fell from a state of grace to a state of sin. At that moment, though we weren't even yet born, we were made to be sinners along with everyone else who ever lived. But when Christ obeyed the Father during the days He walked in the flesh, we too were made righteous even before we were born. When Jesus died upon the cross, He took our sin. When Jesus died upon the cross, He gave His righteousness. He did so through imputation. God considers us righteous because of what Jesus did. Now, if you balk at the idea of being with Adam in the garden, like, I wasn't with Adam in the garden. I wasn't there. Well, then you need to balk at the idea of being with Christ in His death because that's the way... The Bible speaks about us in Christ. Even before we existed, Colossians 2.14 says that our sins were nailed to the cross. Think about that cross. That, that wooden piece of wood on Calvary. Whatever happened to that? Well, the Catholics would have all the splinters of all the crosses enough to build a house, I think. But in actual reality, I am sure that the cross upon which Jesus died 2,000 years ago, that wood... It's rotted. It's probably burned. It's probably gone. It is impossible that your sins today are nailed to that cross because that cross doesn't exist anymore. But as Colossians 2 says, that cross did exist 2,000 years ago. And that our sins were nailed to the cross even though we weren't even born yet. In the same way that we sinned when Adam sinned even though we weren't even born yet. You say, Steve, where is that in the Bible? Well, Romans 5, verse 8. <clears throat> God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Those are time words. In the time when we were sinners, that's when Christ died for us. When He died for, he died for us 2,000 years ago when we were sinners back then because we were sinners in Adam. And the parallel between Christ and Adam is, is great. Now, let me just mention two doctrines that come out of Romans chapter 5 that's important for you to embrace and hold on to. One is the theory of evolution, that we must run far from that theory. Because if you hold on to evolution, <clears throat> believing that we all evolve from protozoa and then birds and reptiles and apes and then come to us, it's a problem in understanding your salvation. I'm not saying that evolutionists, none of them are Christians, but I'm saying they're not consistent and they're going to be saved despite what they think because the arguments of Romans 5 necessitates that we believe in a literal Adam who committed a literal sin, who plunged the human race into a literal death. It's important our sin came through one man because that's how righteousness comes. Righteousness comes through one man. If evolution is true, many people evolving at the same time from apes to human at the same time, the peril needs we need to have many Christs. And uh, I don't think it's any accident that many evolutionists would be Marxist. Hey, let's, our society, we will save ourselves because our society went that way. Let's all save ourselves. But that's not how we are. We believe the one man brought us into this condemnation and the one man will then take us out. And you need to have this one man, the parallel. It's only one Christ who imputes His righteousness to us. Let me also say how necessary is the virgin birth coming out of here. If, if Jesus wasn't virgin born, what would have been true of Him in His essence? He'd be guilty in Adam because He would have sinned in Adam. That's why the virgin birth is so important that Christ came to be among us, was fully man, 
but never had a father with whom they could impute sin, with whom sin would be imputed to Jesus. Because if it was, he wasn't completely righteous, wasn't sufficient for our sacrifice. Hold on to the virgin birth because the virgin birth is crucial for salvation because we needed a Jesus who is absolutely righteous. We needed to have one who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, let's just finish this morning looking at 15 through 17. And um, I don't have much time. I'm not going to talk a lot about these. But merely just to say this, the light shines brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And these verses basically say the same thing that verses 18 and 19 do, but they say it in a different way. They, they say it in a way that says the cross is more glorious than the sin that Adam, Adam, Adam sinned, brought mankind into this, and that's bad. But the cross is not only just restores us to where Adam is, it makes us bigger and better and brand new. Brander new than brander new. Look what it says. The free gift is not like the transgression. He's putting the the contrast here. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, and amen, that is true, much more, here it is, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. As Adam went to, to many... Jesus Christ abounded to the many. And I think what that says is we didn't just restore to Adam. We were restored better than Adam. That's what that's talking about. Verse 16, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Everything is reversed is what this says. It was one transgression, let us all the judgment. Jesus said, listen, there's lots of transgressions, but the one act then brings justification to all of us. Verse 17, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, and that indeed happened, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Death had its sovereignty and dominion over us. In fact, it still does but in a much greater way will life reign in us in Christ Jesus. That's what these verses are talking about. Adam plunged us into sin and that was bad, but the restoration is much better. Do you love imputation? Do you love imputation? I hope you do. I hope you see the dark side of it. I hope you see the light side of it. I just want to end with, with one, one comment. I remember hearing a, um, a man talk one time about our salvation. He says, oh, you know about your sin? I want to tell you, your sin isn't as bad as you think it is. It's far worse. And that's why I showed with Adam. We have sin from forefathers, from Adam. God looks upon us and it's not only your own individual sin. There's more there that you maybe don't even see. Your sin is not as bad as you think it is. It's far worse. And you know what? Your salvation isn't as good as you think it is. It's far better. Because we'd much rather be in our state today than to be in Adam's state. Adam certainly was sinless, but he had the possibility of sinning, and he did sin. We, though, in Christ, though we're sinful now, there will be a day when we will stand completely righteous in God Sinless bodies able to worship Him and serve Him forever. Our salvation is far better than we think. Well, let's pray and thank the Lord for imputation. And Lord, it is true that by one man we came to know sin. Condemned without hope when death entered in. But by one man there's freedom again. He offered the gift of life. By one man we would not obey. Our birthright of joy was taken away. But by one man we are righteous today. He offered the gift of life. And this gift of life is given through Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, God's grace abounds to all. By one man called Adam by name, our judgment was sealed and covered with shame. 
Till God's own Son, Lord Jesus, He came to offer the gift of life. By one man who stood in our place, redeeming by blood those lost in disgrace. Now we stand forgiven by grace, embracing the gift of life. He gave the gift of life. Lord Jesus is the gift of life. And it's come through imputation. Lord, I would pray that we would be those at Rock Valley Bible Church who realize that your ways are not our ways. Amen.